Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I'm bringing back Stephen Kotler. He is a good friend. I've interviewed him before many, many times about his book called Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. I interviewed him for The Rise of Superman, um, which was a great book. And today we're going to speak with him about the new book um, that he's called uh, that he's co-authored with Peter Diamantis. It's called Bold: uh, How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. Good day to you, Stephen. How you doing? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing awesome, and it's awesome to have you back on. And it really is this this book. I want to say to my listeners is definitely one. That you're going to want to pick up if you haven't read Abundance before or The Rise of Superman. I'm going to say get bold because this is one of those things that's a manual. It's a how-to. Uh, it's got great interviews. It's got great research. You've kind of combined all the elements into one here, Stephen. And uh, I'm going to let my listeners know a tad bit about you because every time I do that, it just lets them know a little bit more where they can get more information. So Stephen is the New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist, and he's also the co-founder and research director with his partner Jamie Weil in a project called the Flow Genome Project, and you can get more information on that at www.flowgenomeproject.com. And as I said, his books include The Rise of Superman, Abundance, A Small Fury Prayer, uh, West of Jesus, and The Agile Quickest for Flight. His work has been translated into 35 languages. His articles have appeared in more than 70 publications, including New York Times Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Wired, Forbes, and Times. He also writes for <clears throat> Far Frontiers, a blog about, a blog about science innovation uh, for Forbes.com. And obviously, for my listeners, we'll put up a link to any videos that they may have done on some interviews about Bold. Uh, and any other links to websites and so on. Just look in the blog itself. Well, Stephen, I'm going to start this off this way. You know, you mentioned right off just in the book jacket cover, because I go all over when I pull my questions for these interviews, uh, that thousands of years ago, only kings and pharaohs and emperors had the ability to solve large-scale problems. But today, this has been democratized. At least that's what you guys are stating, and that's what we seem to see happening in society. Um, what's propelled democratization of uh, people to solve large-scale problems, and can anyone really play in this game today, as you guys are stating in the book? Yeah, the, the, the answer is a, is a resounding yes. Anybody can play it at, at this at this game, and and the reason, as you, as you kind of pointed out, for the really the first time in history, individuals, small teams of individuals, have the same power that large corporations and big governments did ten to twenty years ago. They and the reason for this, there and there are there are several, but the fundamental kind of basis underneath all of this is exponentially accelerating technology, right? Technology that is advancing as fast as because Moore's Law, right? Moore's Law, Gordon, Law, Gordon Moore in 1965 notices that the number of integrated circuits on a computer chip, on a transistor, are doubling 
every 18 months, and he makes mm-hmm. a prediction, right? He says he thinks this is going to last 10 more years, and it ends up lasting, you know, now it's going on 60 years, and it's known as Moore's Law, and it's the reason that the cell phone in your pocket is a uh, thousand times faster and a million times cheaper than a supercomputer from the 1970s, right? But that that's exponential growth in computing. That's familiar to most people. What is probably not as familiar is the idea, and this is Ray's Kurzweil's thinking, that once technology becomes digital, right, it can be represented in ones and zeros, it hops on this same exponential growth curve. Mm-hmm. So these are the most powerful technologies the world have ever, ever seen. Synthetic biology, AI, robotics, uh, 3D printing, network sensors, this, this kind of goes on and on, nanotechnology, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big list, incredibly potent technologies, and all of these things are doubling in power and having in price on a periodic, you know, annual, semi-annual basis. What's even cooler is, and this I think is the real enabling feature, all of these technologies are developing user-friendly interfaces. So think about the internet, right? It was a cumbersome, difficult to use system used primarily for the first, you know, two decades of his existence by the military and scientists, because those were the only people who could program it, right? Mark Andreessen comes along, he and Mosaic, right, which is the browser that becomes Netscape, and suddenly anybody can get online. Well, these same kinds of user-friendly interfaces are showing up for all of these incredibly powerful technologies, right? 3D printing, 3D systems, the largest 3D printing company in the world, has invented a plug-and-play interface for 3D printers because they want children to be able to use them. So literally, if you can color inside a coloring book, you can use a 3D printer, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing is happening in robotics. Rodney Brooks, who created the Roomba, that little little vacuum cleaner everybody knows, recently built a robot called Baxter, right? Now, right. until Baxter came along, you wanted to program an industrial strength robot, you had better be a computer scientist and a good one, right? Not only a computer scientist, but if you want this robot to be any good, you were probably a computer scientist who came out of, you know, maybe 10 programs in the United States um, if this thing is going to be cutting edge. Baxter, you literally, you want this robot to do something, you move its arms, which are like nine feet long, through the motion that you want it to perform, and it learns the motion. Anybody can do this. So this is happening kind of across the boards with all of these technologies, incredibly potent technologies. So not only can anybody use them, right? You don't have to be a technologist to use them. And they allow people to scale up their game, right? The level of impact they can make in the world to ridiculously high levels. So your premise is that because these scientists and engineers and people that have high capacity, high brain power have created these things, it's kind of democratized our opportunities as, let's just say, writers or people that are in business to actually get engaged at a much different level than we were. And I'm, and I'm going to talk about this for a second because, you know, when you look at your example in the book about Stephen Sasson as the exponential technology, 76, it was around the digital ca- a, a camera. And today, you know, you see people out there on the Internet posting billions of pictures Uh, YouTube, Facebook, wherever it might be. This technology, um, based upon the way you guys wrote, took longer to mature. But today's technology advancements, as you've just said, are skyrocketing. Speak with the listeners about the six Ds 
and the effects that these six Ds are really having on this exponential growth. Because I think this is a this is a main factor of your book. These are the main things that you're talking that are really making the difference, right? So you're you're right. There now. This isn't the whole of the picture, right? The book looks at exponential tech growth technology, exponential psychological tools, ways to level up your mental game, right. and exponential crowd tools, which right. are ways to raise funding. So there's a lot more coming. It's not just technology. But when we are talking about exponential technologies, what the, the six Ds is their developmental framework. It is how they evolve, right? The first one is digitalization. I spoke about that already, right? For, to start this process, right. it has to be representable in ones and zeros, right? The next one is disruption, right? The innovation creates a new market and disrupts an, an existing one. And, and we see that happening. Usually what follows that disruption that disruption is often more of hype than actually substance in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? Is a period of deception, right? This is, if you're familiar with the Gardner hype curve, this is what they call the trough of disillusionment. Um, it basically means technologies are introduced, we get really excited about them, and they're world-changing power, and then they don't live up to our expectations, so we don't trust them anymore. We don't really believe in them. And, uh, you know, the, the, the most, the classic example in my mind, because I lived through it, I was right there on the front lines for this, that you know, I always smile about is I was in San Francisco um, in the 90s, right? So the dot-com revolution was going on and the internet was happening. And the rhetoric around San Francisco was, oh, my God, this technology is going to save the world. It's going it's to change it, blah, blah, all that stuff, right? And that did eventually end up happening, right? Took a bunch of years. At the time, you know, they were t- making these world-changing proclamations about what was essentially – home shopping, a pretty good encyclopedia, and pornography delivery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That's really what was going on. And yet the rhetoric was save the world, and the truth of the matter is we had to have the dot-com crash. We had to have a lot of – like we went through that period of deception, right? And we all felt it in our wallets, actually. Um, and then, you know, suddenly in the, you know, in the mid-thousands – things exploded again, right? And we had the, the next wave. So that there's a deceptive period. 3D printing is a great example. It's everywhere today, right? But right. it took a long time to mature. We first started hearing about it over 20 years ago, right? But it didn't, it didn't get there, it didn't get there, it didn't get there. Um, you know, it was in that period of deception. So deception is followed by demonetization. And you spoke about the digital camera. Demonetization is literally that... Things, technology makes things practically free, right? Digital cameras made film free in this way because once it's digital, you're measuring it in megapixels. Computers are getting cheaper and cheaper. Smartphones have more processing power. You see, you see this curve, right? Money comes out of the equation. And, you know, this is, again, nothing new on a certain level. Chris Anderson wrote about this when he wrote, you know, the book Free. We are, we are seeing more and more and more of this stuff. In abundance, we put together a chart of all of the, 19, the, like the 1980s era technologies, VCRs, encyclopedias, take your pick, that now come standard in a cell phone, and we added them up, and they're well over a million dollars, right, now comes free with your cell phone. The next thing that happens is it, dematerialization. That's the, the 50 is dematerialization, right? The actual 
physical goods themselves disappear. So, so on your smartphone, right, you've got a camera, you've got a watch, you've got a GPS receiver and a VCR and a music player and a video game console and a calculator and a flashlight, and you can you know, go on and on and on if you start adding in the apps. Well, all those things used to be physical goods that we would purchase independently. Now they come you know, free of charge in your smartphone. And finally, the last of the Ds, what you spoke about, is democratization. And this is what happens when you know, the price of these goods drops so much, right? Cell phones used to be gigantic, and they were right. total luxury objects, and now everybody's got one. So there's right? 7 billion people worldwide. What is the number of people that actually are carrying smartphones? Do you, do you know that? I heard it was just the, such a high number today. The number, the numbers, I want to I say this is not accurate because it's really hard to get actual information on this, but I believe, it's, I believe we're up to about 40%. So 40% of the 7 billion, so we're talking 3.5 billion people out there running yeah. around with connectivity on uh, smartphones. And, 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 and you've got you to gotta remember, of course, that there's huge initiatives. One laptop per child has become one tablet per child, but like initiatives like that on the, like, let's get the hardware into people's hands mm-hmm. level. And then there's initiatives like you know Google and Facebook and SpaceX who are in an arms race to basically bring the world you know, wireless signals, right? Mm-hmm. They want to. They want the whole world to get it, and they're looking at space-based applications so everybody can be connected. And you know, though the timetable for those things are by 2020, right? Right. So you've got three very powerful companies led by three very smart individuals all competing to do this by 2020. Maybe they're all wrong, but we could we we can safely say by 2022, 23, this is going to be reality. Oh, it, most definitely, and I, I doubt if they're wrong because, you know, it, they may miss it by a couple of years. But you, you mentioned something in the book, and, I, and there was a book that you actually referenced inside the book called The Prime Movers. And I think one of the important elements here is we're talking about being bold and, and actually how to go big and create wealth and impact in the world and change the world. You obviously have to work on your mindset, and this is a big element to this. And you mentioned The Prime Movers which identifies the core mental traits of these great business leaders and great uh, leaders, but not only leaders, but I'm going to call them inventors, scientists, whatever. What is the core trait, and can, is it something that you really believe can be developed within people from a standpoint of personal growth and mastery? Well, um Prime Movers is, a, is one take on this, right? But the, 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 I think the bigger picture answers your question, which is, yes, there are. So, you know, right now, if you want to go bold, there are a suite of psychological tools that you need to understand. And to get at this in bold, we did a bunch of different things. First of all, we started with Skunk Works yep. for the simple reason that, for the past 100 years, once you know, Lockheed created the Skunk Works in 1943 to kind of build the world, the, the first American fighter jet, uh, and they did it in like 143 days. It was, it, was, it was astounding, and Lockheed went on to build six or seven other aircrafts this way, all in record time. Then this, was a, this has been adopted by Apple, by Google, by Nordstrom, by Walmart, because the list goes kind of on and on and on. Um, so for the past 100 years, whenever an organization wanted to go bold, they created the Skunk Works. So the first thing we did is we said, well, okay, first of all, what's going on under the hood of a Skunk Works, right? Why do Skunk Works work? And, um, and, 
and what are the psychological tools that, that companion it, which you were talking about Gary Latham's book, The Prime Movers. Gary has done um, some really great work on goal setting, and uh, he, he's one of the psychologists behind goal setting theory. And one of the things about skunk works is they're all built around what psychologists call high hard goals. High hard goals are goals of they're bold goals. They're, I want to save the world. They're Elon Musk saying, I want to reinvent banking with PayPal. They're Peter Diamandis saying, I want to open up the space frontier, you know, with SpaceX. Perhaps they're, you know, Jamie and myself saying, you know, we want to open source flow research to the world, right? These are high, hard goals. But what's cool is the brain, there's a huge portion of our brain, and we're learning more and more about this, but a big chunk of our brain is, is a target acquisition system in a sense. Um, and what that means is we respond very, very well to setting bold goals. In all kinds of studies, in all kinds of different fields, just the act of setting a high, hard goal will amplify productivity 11 to 25 percent, depending on a couple other variables. Wow. That's, that's big, right? At the, at the upper end, that means you're like, you're, if you're working an eight-hour day, you're getting two extra hours for free simply by setting a high, hard goal. Mm-hmm. That's that's some amazing leverage, and that's just kind of the start of, you know, of how these things work. And we, so we go all the way under the hood, and, you know, not surprisingly, you know, since you're familiar with my work, at the core of skunk, what we see is that these skunk works are actually flow generators, right? Mm-hmm. And because we know, you know, flow is pretty much the greatest amplification in, in performance you can, you can get on this planet, and skunk works work really they're built around they're, they're basically a bunch of flow triggers built just turned into kind of an innovation factory and so one of the big reasons right that skunk works are so effective is because they are driving the people working there into flow all the time mm-hmm. um so very yeah. effective there we also in the same section we look at you know peter uh peter lends a lot of his thinking you know he's Peter has phenomenal entrepreneurial expertise. Got 25 years, he started 17 companies. Some of them, the most ambitious companies, you know, in the history of the world. World's first asteroid mining company, uh, Human Longevity Incorporated, a life extension company. These are big, bold things. And what Peter breaks down is how do you launch a bold product above what he calls the line of super credibility? And it's really, you know, how do you kind of launch a bold vision in such a way that people don't dismiss the notion as crazy and instead rally behind it and drive it forward? So, you know, there's there's a whole suite of tools that we cover for, for that portion. And then, you know, the final step in this whole whole thing um, is what we call billionaire wisdom. And this is interesting because what the, the question we were looking at is, if you want to go bold, you have to be able to think at scale, right? If you want to, our, our core premise is that because of these exponential technologies, right, today the easiest way to become billionaires is to solve a billion-person problem. We can now do that, right? They do that at Singularity University every summer. They charge their grad students with coming up with a company that can help a billion people in 10 years or less, right? They're, they're, there's a way to train people to do that, right? But you also have to train the brain to be able to think at scale to do that. Mm-hmm. And the brain doesn't normally, right, we made this point in abundance with exponentials. Well, people have a very hard time processing exponential doubling. It doesn't we have linear minds, right? They don't handle exponentials well. We don't think at scale well. So we backed off that question. We said, well, who does? Who can think at scale? And who was interested in these world-changing problems? And our answer were this kind of the same technophilanthropists we looked at in abundance. So we started, we, we 
took Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Larry Page. And we said, what do these guys do to think at scale? And we did deep interviews with each of them. And then we took, I think it was 250 hours of kind of video footage of all of them giving speeches. And, and then we analyzed their writing. We broke everything they did down um, into eight innovation principles, eight things that they do to think at scale, right? We call this billionaire wisdom, but it's really like their eight secrets for thinking at scale. And the cool thing about all this, whether we're talking about skunk works or this kind of billionaire thinking is anybody can do it. These are principles that any entrepreneur could and should be applying to their business. And I, and I can't emphasize should enough because the thing is today, if you're an entrepreneur and you're not doing these things, other people are. And, right, let's look at Flow for a second. Flow is a 500% boost in performance. McKinsey, right, McKinsey did a 10-year study of top executives in Flow, and they found that average, it's a five-fold increase in productivity, 500% boost productivity. So think about that. If company A is using this and company B is not, who's going to win? I mean, just based on that metric alone, forget everything else, forget the billionaire wisdom, forget Peter's ideas about leveling up your game, all that, forget it. Like, you're no longer even in the race, even if you think you are. Interesting. Hey, so... While we're talking about this, you you say in the book, and I and I had some questions around Skunk Works, but you, you really kind of covered that really well. You speak about these five technologies, which you've mentioned before, that are ripe for these entrepreneur exploitation, as you say. Um, and why do you believe that at this particular point, these entrepreneurs that we're talking with today that are listening to this podcast – are ready for this huge infusion and for these people to descend in this arena and really exponentially, as you keep talking about, grow this those particular five technologies? Well, our point, there's a lot of technologies to play with. Our point is that these technologies are moving out of that deceptive phase. They're leaving the trough of disillusionment, okay. right, in our, in our 60s, um, and they're moving into the demonetization phase, which in our belief, and, and it is just our belief, right, there are venture capitalists out there who have huge metrics on when should they invest in a technology, right, or when should an entrepreneur insert themselves into, you know, this, into the equation. We... We have we, we think all that stuff is valuable, but ultimately it comes down to interface design. Because once there's interface design, anybody can play. And we saw this with the first app store. We saw this with Mosaic, with the Internet. We keep seeing it over and over and over again. And also, we're seeing it right now with 3D printing. We're seeing it right now in robotics. And robotics is a, probably a, a phenomenal example here because when Peter and I wrote Abundance, right, you go back to Abundance, you will see that we are cautious in our predictions for what AI and what robotics will be able to achieve over the next 10 years. And we really put their kind of incredible build out 15 years out. We are, we were, I mean, to say we were so wrong is ridiculous. Literally, like the year after Abundance came out, 2013, they call it the year of the robot, right? Why? Because Google and Facebook started, I guess Google and Amazon started buying up robotics companies, drone companies, all that stuff. It, this stuff got a U. Baxter showed up, a huge, huge breakthrough boost in robotics. That was literally, you know, 12 years ahead of, you know, the fairly expert level timetable that we set in abundance, right? We were still like, we were, we were so all these things are coming online now and anybody can play. And, you know, in bold, 
we, with every one of these technologies, we give you three case studies of three people, probably not very unlike yourself, who maybe you've heard the term synthetic biology or 3D printing, or, you know, but you don't know a whole lot more about it. Um, three examples in each chapter on entrepreneurs coming from absolute zero who built giant, giant billion-dollar businesses on the backs of these technologies, mm. right? So yeah. one of the reasons we're so confident in this is because the book is chock-a-block with examples of people who have done exactly what we're saying is possible. Chock-a-block. I love that. I was just in New Zealand, and I heard that statement, and I, I was literally, you know, I'm thinking of the English. i got to make this comment because you used that in this, in this interview, and then I just had a guy who was using it like every day when I was over in New Zealand. Interesting. So... Hey, you um, you mentioned the billionaires that you virtually interviewed and watched the videos and pulled from and so on. And all of and one thing we didn't mention to our listeners, and I think they're just waiting on the edge of their chair for, is that these they had bold ideas, they had interning commitment to execute on them. But what were those characteristics? Um, they're listed in the book, but we didn't really articulate. Yeah, sure. So sure. Let's, let's take a minute we'll, to yeah, actually. We'll go, we'll go you know, through them quickly. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the, the first is is risk taking and risk mitigation. And uh-huh. you know, risk taking. If you're an entrepreneur, you know you get that already, right? You right. You, you, you like the risk because that's how you're playing in this game. The risk mitigation is, you know. What it's interesting, uh, Bezos and Branson both stress this so much. Um, you know, Rich Branson gives a great example of like, yes, I took this huge risk when I started kind of Virgin uh, Atlantic, his, air, his airline, right? And he, he he used a lot of money from Virgin, his record company to do this. Everybody was really, really nervous. But he said, he said, look, the most critical deal I made was the deal I made with Boeing to be able to give the airplane back and get my money back a year later if it wasn't working out. Mm-hmm. Right, so everybody we're talking about take big risks, but always, always, always protect the downside. Got it. Rapid iteration is ceaseless experimentation. This is this now. This I think these guys critical. stressed it. This is also one of the secrets to skunk. Same thing with risk taking, by the way, but absolutely critical. Right, you have to you have to cycle through. You have to in, in today's world to succeed. You have to fail early, fail often, and fail forward. That Silicon Valley model really matters. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and you see this, you know, you see this kind of everywhere, um, but you really, you, you need strategies in place for it. And you also, again, like Google is great here. They do something really cool, which is, yes, they, they, there's lots of rapid iteration and there's lots of ceaseless experimentation. We saw with Gmail, right? They released Gmail with four features, I believe, and asked users what else they wanted. Right, got immediate feedback, and then introduced the next version, and the next version, and the next version, because they didn't want to have to guess what their customers wanted. This is, you know, in software coding, this is agile design, but you know, it needs to be everywhere uh, these days. The third one is passion and purpose, and this probably should have been the first one. Um, um, well, that's the Daniel Pink. I mean, he talks well, about it's the, you, you it's mentioned the Daniel that back up, yeah. Yeah, you know, I the, the thing I like to always say here to people, because um, I think passion and purpose are these words that have, you know, call, we could call them new age connotations. They've been mystified. There, there, there's a there's a lot of stuff about passion and purpose out there that makes it sound like it's a much bigger deal than it is. But you gotta like, why are passion and purpose so important? Right. Well, first and foremost, because 
the name of the game, whether you're talking flow states, innovation, whatever you're doing is attention, right? If you want to trigger flow, you have to find ways to drive attention into the present moment. That's the first, first rule, right? If you want to do anything, you have to be able to pay attention to it. We pay more attention to those things that we're passionate about, that we believe in. It's simple. You know, that's just simple biology. So the main reason you want passion and purpose is because it drives motivation and it drives attention, right? There, and, you know, Peter is really fond of saying, and I, and I totally agree with him, you know, you are, when, when you're on the, like, you know, umpteenth problem that your startup has had over the past kind of year and a half and it's 4 o'clock in the morning, you haven't slept in four days and it's still not right, you're not going to keep going without passion and purpose. Right. Right. Um, you're literally, your need to go to sleep is going to win. <laughs> so, you know, even on that basic level, right, need, passion, and purpose. Long-term thinking is key here. And, um, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, Jeff, we, Jeff Bezos talks about long-term thinking and customer-centric thinking, which is which are four and five on this list, and gives a great example of, of, of kind of ways to employ this that I love. He said, you know, most people ask the wrong question about the future. They say, well, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what is going to be different? And they try to kind of map for that. He said, I, on the other hand, ask a different question, which is what is going to be the same in 20 years? What do I know? And he said, well, long-term thinking, customer-centric thinking means 20 years from now, I know under no circumstances do my customers want their packages any later, right? They're always going to want what they want sooner rather than later, mm -hmm. right? Nobody's ever going to come to me and say, oh, yeah, you know, it was really nice. It did overnight delivery. That was fantastic. But, you know, I can wait a week. Don't worry about it. That's not going to happen. Right. And the other thing customers are never going to want less of is more he's, selection. He set the bar high, let's face it. so He set the bar yeah, ridiculously it, high. Yeah. But the other thing to remember about all this stuff, right, is – I, I, you know, find me a business right now that isn't competing with Amazon or Google, right, or Facebook. Like, the, everybody's sort of competing with them one way or another. There's very few companies that don't. Mm -hmm. And the guys at the top who you're competing against are thinking this way, which is the other thing that's worth, worth pointing out. I mean, this is a great way to step up your game, but I think, you know, I think it's an either-or because other people are using these things and they work. The yeah. next one is probabilistic thinking, which, I, you know, probabilistic thinking means a lot of different things depending on kind of how robust is your knowledge of statistics on a certain level. But it's really, at a simple level, the idea that the human brain uses a lot of energy, 25% of your, your energy at rest, right? So when you're thinking, it's even more. The brain is always trying to conserve energy. One of the ways it likes to do that is to think in binary, black and white, yes or no. The real world is not that way at all, right? So the way to think at scale when faced with those kinds of problems is to think probabilistically. And that can literally mean instead of saying this business is going to succeed or it's going to failure, fail, you know, this is something Elon Musk talk, told us about, was talking about. He said, you know, I, I, the, the trick is when I looked at, I think he was talking about solar cities. When I looked at solar cities, I thought we had maybe a 40% chance of success, um, thinking probabilistically about it. But my next question was, okay, how do I de-risk it enough to get it up to like a 65, 70% chance of success, right? It allowed him 
to seek more flexibility in thinking and more flexibility in the choices you're going to make going forward. You get a lot from probabilistic thinking. Um, rationally optimistic thinking is equally important. It's also, you know, very important for neurobiological rules. You're, you know, Consciousness is a giant filter on experience, and if you are negative, if you are pessimistic, um, even if you think you are, you know, being a hardcore realist about it, what you are actually doing is limiting the number of options your brain is able to perceive. You're limiting the choices you can make, which means you're limiting innovation. So, you know, rationally optimistic thinking, you know, first of all, it's important if you're going to go after bold goals to feel this way, but it's really important because it trains the brain to take in more information and it drives innovation as a result. And the last one is reliance on first principles or fundamental truths. And this is, this is something that comes out of physics, right? And it's, you know, break things down to the basic constituent parts and look at it that way. Um, this, this was so fundamental to me, this idea when, when building up the Flow Genome Project, right? We had this really amorphous thing called Flow, but I wanted to reduce it to something that we could, you know, really look at and work with. And, you know, so we got it down to, you know, a change in brain waves, a change in neurochemistry, and a change in neuroanatomy. And by from those first principles, we could start working forward. It was, it was literally the unlocking move. Um, there's a great example that Elon Musk gives about when he was, again, it was solar cities or maybe it was the Tesla, and he was talking about, you know, I was thinking about batteries, and if you want to use first principles to apply to batteries, what you literally do is go to the London Metal Exchange and look at the cost of the core components in batteries, right, the actual metals that go into one. And if you do that, you realize that we could be making batteries that are far, 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 far cheaper than we, what we are doing today, right? Mm -hmm. it's, if we can streamline these processes, if you just look at the numbers, if you start with first principles, you realize that, yes, the, there's a lot of innovation to be done, but the idea itself is not flawed because, if you, you know, the, the cost of, of these batteries that are, you know, tens of thousands of dollars are less than 80 bucks on the stock exchange. And it continues to get better and better. I think people that are investing in the technology of improving batteries' lives and the and the ability uh, for the output is just amazing. And we have lots of money going in that field right now. As a matter of fact, they said at the CES show that the only thing that would really the consumers really wanted is longer battery life on their phone. Is that interesting? You got all these people with Google Glasses and all this other kind of stuff going on, and they're saying, "Hey, I want a longer battery life on my phone." I think that's uh, that's one of those innate kind of wisdom things that uh, that co doesn't come around that often. Now, kind of summing this up, uh, this book for our listeners is really a springboard. It's a manual that you've you've created. You've created all kinds of opportunities for the average person out there that would pick this book up and, and read it to not just read it, but digest it, use it, use it as a manual and put it into their business. Um, do you have any tips for the people that are going to go pick up this book today and say, hey, you know, here are the areas where I think that you, this book could really benefit you, benefit your business or benefit your exploration. I mean, right now I'm developing a course called intuition to innovation, all the way through all the cycles. How could you help people get there uh, with the book and the ideas presented in the book? Well, you know, first of all, besides the leveling up your mental game, besides the you know, exposure to the technologies and how to insert yourself in the equation, the third portion of the book, which is 
you know, our breakdown of crowd-powered tools, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, yeah. mm-hmm. incentive prizes, and community building. The point here is, let's just start with crowdfunding, right? With equity crowdfunding, there $50 billion of capital is going to pour into this market by 2020. That is capital that is available to any entrepreneur. So, you know, what are the stumbling blocks to getting started? Well, you didn't know which technologies to pick or how to insert yourself in the equation. Now you do. You didn't have the psychological tools. Now you do. And that suddenly you have the resources. Crowdfunding gives you the capital you need. Crowdsourcing gives you the expertise you need, right? You can today, you can crowdsource Anything. I mean, quantum. If you've got quantum physics problems that you won't need solved, if you want to program an AI, you can crowdsource these things, right? So you can get what you need. Again, you don't have to be a technologist. There's a there's there's two sides to this that, that I want to point out. The first is, I think people have a erroneous impression of crowd-powered tools. I think they have, for example, crowd crowdfunding is in their mind from when Kickstarter first came out. And, oh, I've got this cool idea for a film. I'm going to put it up in Kickstarter. I'm going to raise the money in a flash. Right. It doesn't work that way. These are actually skills. These are kind of business, business, hard business skills at this point. So today's entrepreneur, you may not have to be a technologist. You may not need the technical expertise in that. But what you do need to know how to do is run a crowdfunding campaign, run a crowdsourcing campaign, use incentive prizes to drive breakthrough innovation, build a community, all those things, right? Mm-hmm. So what we did on those, these, on that side is we did some, the, the, when we started this book, we thought, well, okay, this, uh, we'll, we'll start out by we'll interview all the people who have run really successful crowdfunding and enterprises, crowdsourcing campaigns, all that stuff. So the people themselves who did the campaigns, and we'll interview the providers. Turns out that wasn't enough for us because when we started, like, how do you run a crowdfunding campaign? We looked online, right? We found 27 reports, not just websites with actual finished reports on this, and I can't tell you how many websites and seminars and whatnot. So what we decided to do with all this information is a giant meta-analysis, and I don't think anybody's ever done anything like that before. We took all this stuff, and we boiled it down to what are the ideas that overlap? What's on everybody's list? What does everybody say is important, right? And we looked at it that way. So what we gave you is literally a plug-and-play playbook for how to do these things, right? These are the errors not to make, and I mean, including like timelines and lists and everything else. So you, for the first time, I think anybody really can. And the thing is, we know it works because we both, both Peter and myself, took this stuff into the field, and this is, you know, this is what we've used. This is what we deployed when Peter, you know, ran his first crowdfunding experiment. You know, he broke the bank for space prizes. He raised more money than anybody's anybody's raised for a space project before. So, you know, we've we and the other side is true. With the Flow Genome Project, we were about to run a crowdfunding campaign for our first Flow Dojo, and realized that I was not practicing what I was preaching, and the campaign was going to be an utter failure. And we canceled it a week uh, before it started. Mm. So, I mean, on both sides of this, we've been really taking our own medicine, putting it into the field, seeing what works, you know, all that stuff. And I think, so, hopefully, you know, there's, un, there's, there's more than enough information in this book for anybody. And well, I mean anybody. I, I think it's, dangerous. as you say, chock-a-block, this, is, this book is loaded, but not just loaded. The way you've laid it out into the three sections is, is quite 
practical. Um, I can tell my listeners right now who are thinking about, hey, look, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking to get inspired. I'm looking to get in, go a new direction. I'm looking to be uh, find a new way to raise money. This particular book addresses all of those. It addresses it from the standpoint of the practicality of how you would apply these things to either an existing business or a new business. I think you've, you both, uh, you and Peter, have done a stupendous job here. I want to thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of the stories. There's great stories in this book as well. Where would you direct these individuals who are now listening not to just purchase a copy because the reality is I can get that on Amazon. I can go to Barnes & Noble. I can go to all my favorite bookstores, which we're going to have all the links to that. But is there anywhere else like the Flow Genome Project where they can learn more about you, dig into you, follow you, your yeah, blog, I mean, Peter's blog? Because yeah. I get Even, Peter's newsletters every day virtually, and I read his stuff, and he's always doing something. Um, what about you? What have you got out there where people can subscribe to your blog and get you know daily messages or whatever? Well, if you, if you go to stephencotler.com, um, S-T-E-V-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com, uh-huh. Right, you can sign up for Far Frontiers, which is my monthly newsletter. Okay. Um, if you go to the Flow Genome Project, you can sign up for Flow Hacker Nation, which is the monthly newsletter of the Flow Genome Project. And that will, you know, between the two of those, you get a pretty good overview of everything that's going on and all the ways you can plug in. You know, obviously, if you want to plug in deeper on the Flow stuff, we have courses, workshops, all that stuff available through the Flow Genome Project, you know, as well. And, you know, if you want to go deeper with Peter, he has the Abundance 360 community. So there's, there's you know, lots of, lots of next steps. So we'll put all those links in to this blog entry when we post this uh, particular podcast around my listeners. So all you'll do is just have to click on it. Stephen, again, it's a pleasure. I know you're running out of time, and I want to be sensitive to that. Um, again, for my listeners, the book is Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. And we've been speaking with Stephen Kotler. And Stephen, it's just been a pleasure having you on. Uh, pleasure every time that I interview you. I could stay on for hours listening to you because you've really done the work uh, behind the book, and you know this stuff so well. I mean, it's just it's so phenomenal. You've got great stories. You've uh, included them in here. Thanks for being on. Greg, thank you. I appreciate it.